0: Any of that look familiar? (laughs) Absolutely, dads. Happy Father's Day to all of you. Glad that you are here. Glad that we have an opportunity uh, to celebrate dads and what God does through them in the lives of their families. Today, we have an opportunity to be a part of a recognition and commissioning of our newest elder here at Friendship Church. And so I want to invite Jason Allen to come and join me here. You're too far away over there. This is an ideal situation for me in which I have a microphone and Jason doesn't. And as Jason comes, I want us to recognize how ideal it is to do this on Father's Day. And I say that because of what 1 Timothy chapter 3 says about overseers or elders. It says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, nor violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Part of what God says about those who are going to be overseers or elders in the church is that they must manage their family well. That is, they must father well because the position they're being invited into within the church is to father the church as they lead their family and manage their family so they are to lead and manage the church as a father teaches and cares and leads and guides. And so today we want to recognize that and what a great day it is on Father's Day uh, to be able to do that. Now you may say, Now, Matt, the passage you read is about overseers. I thought you said we were commissioning an elder. And so we need to understand that the Bible uses the terms overseer, elder, and pastor synonymously. And here at Friendship Church, we have paid overseers that we refer to as pastors, and we have unpaid overseers that we refer to as elders. But they are all overseers, as 1 Timothy 3 talks about that office or that function within the church. And so today we get to commission Jason into that office. And we are so thankful for what God has done in Jason's life to bring him to this place, to ready him to lead God's people. We're so thankful for his character, grateful for the gifts God has given him of teaching and shepherding that he is already using and will use even further in the years to come. And so would you join me in praying as we commission Jason? And uh, I'm not going to have a bunch of people come up here. Instead, if you'd extend your hands. And on behalf of all of us, I'll place my hand on Jason here. And we pray, Father, what a blessing Jason is to us as a congregation. We're thankful for the work that you have done through the power of your Holy Spirit to bring him to this place in life. We're grateful for the years that he has served as an overseer, in other places and now as he brings his character, his gifts and talents and his relationships here, we are so thankful for that. We recognize that Lord, you've ultimately given him gifts in teaching, gifts in in shepherding, gifts in care, but it is his character with which we for which we are so most thankful. And so God, we ask that you'd use him and that you'd protect him. Lord, protect he and his family recognizing that Leaders within the church often uh, garner a certain level of attack from the enemy. Be with them, strengthen them during this time. Lord, help us to follow well, as Hebrews 13 says, to, to obey and, and follow after those who lead us in a way that brings glory to your name. God, we give you thanks for Jason and pray for your blessing on his family, on his life, and on his ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, uh, happy Father's Day. And I would like to know by show of hands anyone who grew up in a home where your father was raising at least five kids? Anyone? Okay, keep your hands up if at least six kids, seven kids, eight kids, nine kids, ten kids, eleven kids. 12 kids, 13 kids. Okay, a couple with uh, 13, it looked like. Wow! Right? When dinner goes on the table, do not fight these people for it. They know how to get dinner, all right? You get while they're getting is good. Oh, that's awesome, you guys. And we are so thankful for uh, all of the fathers in our life. Today, we specially recognize those fathers who have been important to us, who have passed on. And we're thankful for their influence and, particularly, for godly influence in our lives. As Jason mentioned, we come to the last week in our sermon series called Romans Road. This is actually part two of a four part look in Romans. And we're ending part two that looks at chapters five through eight. And we will pick up the next section in a few months. But it makes sense to me before we dig into this section of Romans chapter eight, which is deeply encouraging to the believer, that we would do a little bit of review of what we have seen in Romans. And in order to do that review, uh, John promised you last week, wasn't it good to have John Tolly with us last week? Absolutely it was. Pastor John promised you last week that I would bring the drawings back. Right? The kindergarten level drawings would make another appearance. And so I need you guys to eat it up. Eat up these drawings because you're not going to see them for a really long time after this. But let's use them as a way to review what we've seen thus far in Romans. First of all, we have seen that God is righteousness. Romans 3.21 It isn't just that God's really good at doing right and wrong according to some external standard. No, when we say God is righteousness, it means that everything that is right is determined by his character. It flows out of his character. So love is right because God is love. Honesty is right because God is truth. And so it is God's character that determines what is right. He is righteousness. We've also seen in Romans on many occasions that we are not righteousness. While God is righteousness, we're sinful, disobedient, and selfish. And so we're broken. We're not the image of Christ. We're not the image of God that we were designed to be. But God didn't leave us in that brokenness. What did he do? What does Romans 5, 9 say? That while we were in the middle of our sin... In the midst of the things that we've done wrong, in the midst of our selfishness, in the midst of our disobedience, God loved us and sent his son so that he might pay our price so that we might be forgiven and have new life in him. And now, as we have been looking at Romans, we are just walking through one blessing that is a part of our salvation after another. Started in chapters 4 and 5 with the blessing of justification. God has made us or declared us to be righteous in his courtroom. Jesus took our guilt and the punishment for that guilt upon himself on the cross, and we have been given or credited with his righteousness in God's courtroom. And so we are justified, declared righteous by God. How are we justified? By doing enough good things? By observing certain symbols? Now Romans chapter 4 was very clear that a person can only be justified by placing their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But the blessings of our salvation don't stop with our justification. Chapters 6 and 7 of Romans focus on our sanctification. God is making us clean and transforming our lives right here, right now. His spirit comes to dwell within us and begins to change who we are to make us more like Jesus. And we saw in Romans 6 and 7 that every person who is justified enters into the process of sanctification. And God also showed us in Romans 6 and 7 that He's given us a role to play in our sanctification. Right? What is that role that He's given us to play? Romans 6 and 7 referred to it as submitting our members to God. And we talked about the fact that that word members means the parts of our body, our eyes, our ears, our mind, and our heart. Our job in sanctification is to submit those things to God and the things of God rather than the things of the world. And God's Spirit uses that in order to cleanse us and make us more like Jesus. When we think about God's part in our sanctification and the part that he has given to us, One illustration that I've found helpful is the illustration of a sailboat. Ultimately, it is the wind that makes a sailboat move forward. If there is no wind, that sailboat doesn't go anywhere. And in that same way, it is the Holy Spirit that produces sanctification within the life of a believer. But that wind doesn't do any good Unless someone unfurls the sail on the sailboat. And God has given us that part to unfurl the sail in our life so that the winds of the Holy Spirit will catch it and bring us to greater and greater Christ-likeness. And how do we unfurl the sail? By submitting our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our ears to God and the things of God. When we do that... His Spirit brings transformation in our life. He gets all the credit for what is going on. He is the wind, but He's given us the job of unfurling the sail. And the New Testament is clear, and and our experience confirms this, not every believer unfurls the sail the same amount. There are differences in maturity among Christians. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is different in one person's life than in the life of another? No, because different believers unfurl the sail different amounts, dedicate themselves to the things of God in different amounts. And so there are believers who are at different points of maturity. But every believer, everyone who is justified, unfurls the sail to some degree so that the process of sanctification is taking place in their life. And so from chapters 4 and 5 in justification, we moved into chapters 6 and 7 in sanctification, to chapter 8 where we saw the good news of our glorification that ultimately one day we will be restored and made totally like God's image, the image of Christ. And we will dwell in a place that is pure goodness, a completely restored creation we saw last week. And so we look forward to that day as a great blessing of our salvation. Now, with that review in mind, we launch into our passage today, Romans 8, 28 through 39, and we are going to see one big point over and over and over again in this passage. Right, what is that one big point that we're going to see over and over and over again? It's this, these blessings of salvation that Romans has been talked about, they are assured in your life. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, these blessings of salvation are assured. They're a sure thing in your life. Why? Well, that's what these verses are going to answer. Why you can have assurance, if you're a follower of Jesus, that these things, these blessings are going to be yours. And let's start with this. They are assured because God has promised to work everything together for your good. Romans 8.28 says... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Disciple of Jesus. What percentage of things has God promised to work towards your good? Right? 99%? 99.9%? He's promised to work what? All things together for your good. The sovereign God of the universe has promised to work all things together for your good. But there are a couple of conditions on this promise, aren't there, that we see in this verse. One of those conditions is that we need to love God and be called according to His purpose. Does God work all things together for good for those who reject Him? No. Does God work all things together for good for those who claim the name of Christ but don't actually follow Him? No. God works all things together for good for those who are in a love relationship with God and who have been called according to His purpose so that His purpose is the priority of their life. For them, God works all things together for good. Another condition that we need to recognize is that it is God that gets to define what is good and he defines what is our good in the very next verse, right? Verse 29 helps us define what the good is in verse 28. It says, for those whom he foreknew and also predestined, right, why have we been saved? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's God's good that he is working in your life? Why has he saved you? So that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That is God's declared good for us as his children. In my flesh, sometimes I am tempted to think of other things as my good. What kind of things? Life being comfortable, people liking me, me having success according to the world's standards, there are times where I want to consider that to be the ultimate good. And God says, no, no, your good is what? Being conformed to the image of my son. Is that always comfortable? Absolutely not. What, what did we read in Romans 5, 3, and 4? More than that, we rejoice in our what? Sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Ultimately, we want that character that is Christ-like, because it produces hope that, yes, we are his followers. And what is it that can produce that character of Christ-likeness in our life? Suffering. Suffering. God often uses hard things in order to shake us out of complacency and comfort and make us more and more dependent upon him, to stretch our faith. And so God uses hard things in order to bring us to a place where we are more like Christ. One aside, our contentment as followers of Jesus is entirely dependent upon our defining good the way God defines good. If God defines good as me becoming like Christ and I'm defining good as me having a comfortable day-to-day existence, I am going to regularly be experiencing dissonance between those two things and frustration. And real contentment in life only comes when my definition of good comes over here and matches up perfectly with God's definition of good in my life. And then I can reach a place where I am recognizing the blessing and benefit of all of the things that he is bringing into my life. Can I be assured of the blessings of my salvation? Absolutely, yes, 100%. Why? Because God has promised to work everything together for your good if you're his follower. But that's not the only reason this passage gives. You can also be assured that God's blessings of salvation are going to be yours because God is the one doing it. Look at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we're going to save a deeper dive into foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, genuine decisions among human beings. We're going to save all of that for chapters 9 through 11 because he digs in deep into that. Today, I just want you to see that God has selected you to be his child. The word predestined means determined beforehand. You may be saying, wait a minute, God didn't choose me. I chose him. I remember when I did it. And the Bible would say to you, yes, you were only able to choose him because he first chose you. Just think for a minute about the circumstances that led to your faith in Jesus Christ. Did you determine what part of the world you were going to be born into? Did you determine the home that you were going to be born into? Did you determine the environment in the home in which you were born that helped shape your openness and personality? When someone did share the message of Jesus with you and you responded in faith, did you determine that they would share the message with you at that time? Romans chapter 6 and 7 were very clear that before Jesus, we were slaves to sin. Did you overcome that slavery to sin in your own willpower so that you could choose Jesus? No. Ultimately, it is God who has chosen us to be his children. And if God chose you before you were born, Ephesians 1.3, won't he also then see your salvation through to all of its blessings, Philippians 1.6? Absolutely and amen, he will. It is so sure that in this passage, the word glorified appears in the past tense. When the New Testament talks about our glorification, it is almost always looking forward to that day when we will be glorified. But in this passage, your glorification is so sure because it is God who is the one who is doing it that it is in the past tense because it is a done deal that you will be with him and be like him. Are the blessings of salvation yours? Absolutely they are because it is God who is doing it. I'd be in trouble if it depended upon me, but it is all about him. The blessings of salvation also are assured in your life because, as the next verse says, God is for you. God is for you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can you guys think of anyone who might be against you? Doesn't the Bible even outline some, some people who are against it? Like Satan and the world and the flesh, they're against us, right? But what's the flow of this passage? While those people or things may come against you, if you are on God's team, none of them can stand against you. If you are on God's team, ultimately, you will be victorious because God is for you. I think I've told you a story before about a time when my son was in kindergarten or first grade. I don't know. How how tall are you in kindergarten or first grade? Whatever. (laughs) And he's out in our driveway with a couple of his friends, and they're shooting hoops on the eight-foot-tall basket that we had in our driveway. And as they're out there shooting hoops, a group of boys in the fourth grade walk by and challenge this group of kindergartners or first graders to a three-on-three game of basketball. And they start playing, and of course, the fourth graders are just dominating my son and his friends. One of my son's friends has to go home. I don't know, maybe he just got tired of getting beat up on. And he took off, and my son saw an opportunity. And he said, Dad, do you want to come and play on our team? I've been sitting there watching these fourth grade boys beat up on my son and his little kindergarten and first grade friends. And I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'll join. I'll join. Right now, I'd probably get hurt, but I was younger in those days, and it was an eight-foot hoop. And so as these fourth graders start playing, I am swatting shots out into the yard. I'm bringing the ball in and dunking on these guys. I mean, these fourth graders think that Shaquille O'Neal has come to play with them because of the way that I am bullying them and dominating them. My son knew that if he was going to be on dad's team in that situation, he he was going to win. And in a far greater way, that is precisely what Paul is saying here. Uh, The Bible says there are things that come against us, but there's nothing that comes against us that can stand if we are on God's team, ultimately we'll be victorious. Now, will temptation and sin occasionally make a basket in our life? If I can stretch my illustration, right? Will will we experience some of those ups and downs we talked about three weeks ago that Paul talked about? Oh, the good I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do. And Right? Remember that? Absolutely. But ultimate victory over temptation and sin is ours. God has given us everything we need for victory over sin in our life now and ultimately when we are glorified with him. Uh, the blessings of salvation, they're assured they're ours because God is for you. But again, that's, there's more reasons to come. The blessings of your salvation are also assured because God gave his son for you. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? If God has given his one and only Son, that which is most precious to him, so that he will take the cup of the wrath towards sin on the cross, if God will make that sacrifice, make that payment, won't he also give us everything we need for the Christian life and for our glorification? Of course he will. If he's given us the great big thing, he's going to give us everything else that follows after that. Uh, when my kids were young, if I bought them some really big, really expensive toy that they wanted, a really big, really expensive, and battery operated, and I gave it to them for Christmas, and they opened the toy and they were so excited because this is a dream come true. It's the greatest toy ever. And then they said, but where are the batteries? And I said, uh, sorry, no batteries. We're done giving you anything. Right? You can have that toy, but I'm not giving you any batteries to operate it. Right? That's ludicrous. If I'm going to give them the great big toy and go through all of that sacrifice, I'm going to give them the little package of batteries they need in order to run it. And God says, if, if he sent his own son, In order to take the wrath towards sin, isn't he going to give us everything we need for the Christian life and for our ultimate glorification one day? Yes, yes, absolutely yes. And so the blessings of salvation, they are assured in our life because God gave his son for you. But there's even more. The blessings of our salvation are assured because God declares us righteous based on Jesus' work. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Yeah, is, is there anyone who would bring a charge or an accusation against you? Yes. Right, what's his name? Diabolos, which means the accuser. And he regularly accuses you in the courtroom of God. But the point of this verse is, there are no accusations that can stand against you. Why? Because your standing in God's eyes doesn't depend upon you. What does it depend upon? The work of Jesus on your behalf. If, if this verse said, who shall bring any charge against God elect, it is Matt who justifies himself. Oh man, would I be in a lot of trouble, right? Because the accuser has all kinds of material to use against me. He's the father of lies and he can make up stuff about me, but let me be honest, he doesn't need to very often because I give him lots of material to work with in the courtroom of God. But in the midst of that, every time that he brings up an accusation, God says, His salvation doesn't depend upon that. It depends on the work that my son did on his behalf. That, that's what verse 34 is about. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What are the chances that God is going to condemn us as our judge if it is his son who is acting as our defense attorney? That's what this word translated intercede means here it means to plead your case, right? It was a courtroom term. It is Jesus who is our defense attorney. What are the chances the Father is going to declare you condemned when it is the Son who is acting as your defense attorney? And every time there is an accusation brought, Jesus says, I paid for that. I paid for that. When I died on the cross, Matt's sins were forgiven. When I was raised to new life, I guaranteed that he would be raised to new life because of what Jesus has done. God declared us righteous based on Jesus' work, and so the blessings of salvation are assured. Now the last reason that this passage gives us that the blessings that we have seen throughout Romans are assured for the disciple of Jesus Christ is this, because nothing can separate us from Jesus' love. You a disciple of Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, we're in the midst of suffering as apostles. Does that mean God doesn't love us? When we experience suffering, does that mean God is withdrawn and doesn't love us anymore? And when we're experiencing times that are pleasant, does that mean God loves us an extra amount? There was a little of this thinking among the Jews in Jesus' day and before, so that when a man born blind was presented, they would say, hey, who sinned, this man or his father? Because God clearly doesn't love this guy. Ultimately, God wants us to understand suffering is not a sign that he has withdrawn his love. He loves us deeply within our suffering. When things are going well, when things when we are hurting, God is with us and he loves us. We suffer because, in part because we live in a broken and messy world with broken and messy people, as broken and messy people. And still God uses that in order to form his character in us. And when we go through that hurt, and when we go through that hardship, we do so with God by our side, a God who has suffered beyond what any of us can imagine at the cross. A sufferer who says, I walk through this with you and I love you. And so follower of Jesus, is there anything that can separate you from the love of God? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says, everything that is seen it can't separate you from the love of Jesus. Everything that's unseen, it can't separate you from the love of Jesus. Boy, the seen and the unseen. That sounds like pretty much everything, doesn't it? It says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, nothing whatsoever. And because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you are more than conquerors. Right? Nikeo, super conquerors. Uh, we might translate it, hyper-conquerors. Really, really victorious is what that phrase means. Why? Because I'm awesome? Nope. What did it say? Conquers through him who loved us. Right? I'm, not, I'm not a super-conqueror in myself. Far from it. But we are more than conquerors because of the work of Jesus Christ. When we face temptation, when we face sin, He has given us all we need in order to overcome that. And He has promised us that there will come a day when we dwell with God and all that is good. It's because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that all who belong to Him will persevere in their faith and experience the ultimate victory of glory with God forever. It is assured. It is assured. And so, friends, just look at these words for a minute. The blessings of salvation that we have seen in each chapter of Romans. If you are His disciple, they are assured in your life. What joy there is in that. What peace there is in that. What hope there is in that. This is what we celebrate Every time we participate in the Lord's Supper together, every time we take communion, we recognize what Jesus has done on our behalf so that we are more than conquerors, what he has done in order to defeat sin, in order to defeat the enemy so that we might live with him and live with him forever. And so today I invite you to continue to keep your mind on those things that Romans 8 has been talking about, the blessings of salvation that are assured for you because of the work of Jesus. We're going to take the bread and the cup that represent his body and blood that has been shed for us so that we can be a part of this eternal family. And so as we continue to sing the praises of Jesus in song, when you're ready, you can make your way to tables in one of the corners of the room and take those elements and bring them back to your seat. And I'll lead us in the taking of those elements in a few minutes.